Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. She was vomiting. She, she was so afraid. It's the most brutal thing I've ever read about, in fact, or fiction. You, you can only imagine the horror of that situation. She's terrified and she knows something bad is about to happen. She is saying that they are ready and willing to yeah, kill categorically. Hello, my name is Simon Toyne and I kill people for a living. I sometimes spend days planning the perfect murder, how I do it, and, more importantly, how I'd get away with it. But don't worry, I'm not a psychopath, I'm actually a crime writer, and my murderous thoughts only go as far as the pages of my books, and the occasional podcast. I'm also the presenter of the CBS reality television series Written in Blood, and this is the companion podcast. Here you'll get additional content, behind-the-scenes insights, and much more detail about the cases we feature and the authors I meet. So hopefully by now you've watched the first episode, and if not, I suggest you tune into that first, then have a listen to this podcast. That way you'll avoid any spoilers and find out about the story in the same way I did. In this episode, award-winning author Mark Billingham tells me the story of one of the most shocking crimes I've certainly ever heard about, the murder of a young woman called Banaz Mahmood. It's a case which shocked him, which is no mean feat, as Mark has committed countless murders himself over the course of his 17 novels. But no fictional crime can possibly come close to the horrible details he shared with me while we were making this episode. But before we sink into the dark depths of this story, let me first tell you a bit more about Mark. Mark Billingham is a giant in the crime writing world, and his books about DCI Tom Thorne have sold millions of copies around the world and have also been turned into TV dramas. He was also one of the very first writers I met on the book circuit when my first book was coming out. I'd read his books and I was a bit of a fan, so I was kind of nervous when I first met him. But, you know, he's one of those, he's such a lovely bloke. He's really funny, he's generous. In fact, most crime writers are like that. There's a sort of well-known phrase about crime writers that actually we're all very nice people because we get all our darkness out on the page. And that, in truth, it's the romance writers that are the evil ones. Uh, I couldn't possibly comment, of course, being a crime writer. Um, but anyway, one of the things I wanted to explore in this series was the different ways writers go about their work. Now, I've always been fascinated by how people write, where they write, and their ways of generating stories, because everyone seems to do it slightly differently. So if you're a writer yourself, struggling away and thinking you're doing it wrong, the good news is you can't possibly be, because there is no right way to write. You just have to figure out what works for you. Anyway, this is how Mark does it. 
somebody once said to Dorothy Parker, do you enjoy writing? And she said, I enjoy having written. And that's what it is. So you've finished a book and it's you're the king of the world and it's great. Then you have to get back to doing what it is you're actually paid to do, which is write a book. And sometimes you've got some very good ideas. Sometimes you've got nothing. Then a little story you see in a newspaper will sort of spark something off or whatever. I remember I, I kind of had the start of Love Like Blood in my head because it carried on a little bit from what had happened to Thorn at the end of the previous book. And I, obviously I knew that Honor Killing and the, and the, and the story of Banaz Mahmud was was right there as the kind of bedrock of everything. But it's still very hard to, to start writing. It's like you've forgotten how to do it. Since you finished the last one, it's like you've forgotten how to do it. 50 pages in, you go, oh yeah, I, I think I'll get away with this again. I like to have things around me that make me feel comfortable and you know things that are familiar. Um, but then I have to go into a world that is anything but comfortable and anything but familiar and try and write things that are gonna take the reader into some uncomfortable places. These days there's so much you can do sitting at your desk. I can go on Google Maps and I can look at almost any street in the world. But I like to go out and kind of recce locations in the same way that a, a film director would to go and have a look. Because that way you've, you will see things, hear things, you will smell things that you wouldn't imagine. With a book like Love Like Blood, it was about uh, immersing myself a bit in the life of communities that I'm not familiar with. Um, and talking to people. People like to talk. People do like to talk to you, you know, if you're, if you're pleasant about it and you don't, you know, buttonhole them while they're in the toilet or whatever, most people will, will have a conversation with you. And actually it's through talking to people that you really find out the stuff that's going to that's gonna elevate the book a bit. Mark is one of the very few writers I've met who doesn't seem to have a clue what their main character looks like. Normally writers can at least pick their protagonist out of a liner, but Mark believes that it's up to the reader to decide what Tom Thorne looks like, and, you know, whether he's got a big nose or a full head of hair or whatever. Thorne's my main guy, I suppose. I've been writing about him for the um, best part of 20 years now. Um, and he, uh, he sort of came along accidentally. The he wasn't even the main character, really, in the very first book. The main character in the, in the first book was the victim of, of, the, of the crime he was investigating, but I needed a cop. Uh, and so I, I came up with him, and, and, uh, and I'm still writing about him all this time later. I don't know what he looks like. I don't, I don't much care what he looks like. The reader will decide what he looks like. In that way, you know, you do when you read a book, you start to see pictures. It's like what they say about drama on radio, pictures are better. You know, the, re the reader's imagination will put flesh on those bones and will go, oh, I... And I've been to groups, I've been to book groups where they're discussing Thorne and going, oh, he's got, he's got lovely warm eyes. No, he hasn't, he's got dark, scary eyes. And you go, well, you're both right. You know, because I, I haven't said what kind of eyes he's got. All, all that I'm set on with, with Thorne is that he's somebody that changes. He's a character that changes from book to book because he does the kind of job where he's dealing every day with death and, and violence and grief and loss and pain and he can't just pick himself up like and dust himself down and like nothing's happened. He's going to carry some scars with him externally and internally and be a different character next time round and that's really important. So he's not the same character I was writing about nearly 20 years ago and I hope he won't be in 10 years time. I don't have a dossier on him, I don't know where he went to school or what he has for breakfast, uh, you know I just put him on the page and, and see what he does really. I have to have at least some visual starting point, even if it ultimately veers away from that when I get deeper into the book. So I start with a character document for every novel, uh, with a brief physical description of all the characters, some backstory, um, and also a photograph of each one. 
Uh, now, this can be anything from someone I know to someone famous, or sometimes it's an actor in a very specific role. But the key is the characters are not fixed. They evolve in the writing process and also in the reading. So Mark's decision to entirely get out of the way of the reader's imagination is both brave and smart. But though it's actually quite easy to say and a lot harder to do. It's easier, for example, to fall into the trap of stereotype when describing a character, you know, the kind of hulking offender with scars on his face or the beautiful looking victim, when in fact real people involved in real crimes tend to just look like you and me. The same is true of location. For a crime novel, it's all too easy to tiptoe down the cliché-strewn path of ominous, gothic, shadowy streets with wall-to-wall graffiti and storm clouds overhead and broken bottles and discarded syringes crunching underfoot. Now, I'm not saying that crimes don't happen in places like that, but in truth, the majority of them happen in the most mundane of settings. Perfectly ordinary homes with perfectly ordinary front rooms and gardens and perfectly ordinary killers. Most of Mark's books are set in Barnet, North London, an area he knows well, and it shows in his writing. The streets Tom Thorne walks down feel real and familiar, and the crimes that take place there and the lives they affect feel all the more shocking and unsettling because of that. Because crime novels tap into our deepest fears and allow us to explore them from the safety of our own lives, where we hope the things we read about will never happen to us, even though we know full well that sometimes, tragically, for some people, they do. Mark took me to South London to tell the unbelievably tragic story of Benaz Mahmood. We walked the streets she used to walk, visited the tube station where she secretly met with her boyfriend, and also the park by her family home, where police searched for her body after she went missing. It was all so chilling in its ordinariness, and also very illuminating for me to find out what Mark took from that experience. You start with these, the facts of something, a case that you inspires you or fires you up, but then you move away into fiction, because you have to. It's not a documentary, it's not true crime. So you're writing a novel with this, this real event there as a kind of bedrock. Then when you come back to do something like this, and, and all we've been talking about are the real facts of the case, you're just reminded how truly horrific they are. It's not like you've forgotten them, but it really brings home to you when, you when you look at all the facts and all the things that happened one after the other, just how monstrous it was and how tragic it was. And that has kind of left you a little bit and it's been a real... It kind of pulls you, so you've drifted away and then this pulls you back. But it's just this pinning it to the reality of the places and, and the again, going exactly. back to what we said at the beginning, the just absolute exactly. ordinary. Standing in, those, standing in those woods and there's Benazi's house and the place she's buried, the, cafe she ran to, all these places that are part of her story, that you then fictionalise and mm. off you go and you're giving your characters interesting things to say and you're describing them and all that stuff we do every day. But suddenly just, just the kind of ordinariness of all these locations and all these uh, connections to her story, they really kind of bring that horror back. The story Mark Billingham wrote about is one I actually remember reading about at the time. It was the horrific tale of a young girl, Banaz Mahmood, brutally killed by members of her own family after someone saw her kissing a boy they didn't approve of outside a tube station. It's something which, as I said to Mark at the time, sounds like the opening scene of a romantic comedy, not a crime story. But as Mark took me on a journey through all the twists and turns of the case, it became more and more real and all the more tragic. 
There's one particular moment that stayed with me. It's the terrible New Year's Eve when Bernaz fled through the streets, bleeding and drunk and terrified after her father had made an attempt on her life. Mark and I sat in a cafe just around the corner from where it happened and talked about what had taken place there. On New Year's Eve 2005, the first attempt was made on Bernaz's life. She was told to go to her grandmother's house. Uh, she went to her grandmother's house. She was told to bring a suitcase. So she walked into the house with the suitcase. Her father is there. She has brandy poured down her, which is just completely, you know, aberrant behaviour. She doesn't know what's going on, but she does what she's told, and she drinks this brandy until she's, she's all but insensible. She turns around to see that her father is wearing these blue gloves and these strange training shoes and he keeps telling her, don't look at me, don't look at me, and, and she does look at him and she, she's terrified and she knows something bad is about to happen. You know, there's something very, very strange and, and sinister going on. At one point he leaves because he's not quite ready to do whatever he's about to do. She sees that the key is still in the back door, she manages to get out. She runs, she flees from the house, she tries to get help from a neighbour, she bangs on the neighbour's window, her hand goes through it, she cuts herself. She's running through the streets, hysterical, screaming, crying, bleeding, barefoot, stumbles into the first place that's open where there are lights, which is a cafe exactly like this, on this road, begging for help. They call the police and she ends up being taken to hospital. So she goes to hospital, uh, Ramat comes to, to see her and actually videos her trying to tell him. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In this sort of garbled state and confused state, what has happened to her? The police don't really take it seriously. The police just think there's a woman that's drunk too much. She was making up stories. It's New Year's Eve, so New know, Year's everyone's Eve. drunk. Yeah. yeah, of course. The police are very busy anyway. Mm -hmm. Um... And that was kind of it. That was, that was the first moment, I think, when she genuinely thought, they are going to kill me. I mean, it's, there's always been this, this is very dangerous, meeting Ramat, doing all these things. But this was the first time in which she actually realised they did genuinely mean her physical harm. And she's released from hospital. She's released from hospital. She goes back to Ramat for a day or two, and then the family persuade her to come home. Persuade her to come home with her knowing 
what she's put in that letter, which is quite remarkable. But she obviously just so wanted to. I mean, she must have thought there was no life away from the family. She, they would always be in danger and didn't want their life and probably so wanted. I imagine she just kind of like wanted to believe that there was a way through this. There was a way of making it right. It's very hard to put yourself inside Benazi's head and go, why did she, why did she go home? But she'd had no support from the police. They hadn't stepped forward and, and, and supported or saved her at any stage. So she, she wants to believe her family when they say, look, no, it, it, it's all, you've got it wrong, you've got the wrong end of the stick, we, you know, we love you, come home. So she goes home and of course, everything she's predicted comes true just a couple of weeks later. I remember thinking about how utterly terrifying it must have been for Bernaz in that moment, realizing that all her paranoid worries all the looking over her shoulder and wondering if she was in real danger was actually true, that she had not been imagining any of it because her own father had just tried to kill her. One thing Mark and I did keep coming across was the police's role in the lead-up to Benaz's murder and their failure, pretty much, to step in and protect her. Now, if you've watched the programme, you'll know that there are several points where Benaz went to the police to ask specifically for their help. Um, and I want to explore that in a bit more detail here. Uh, so, yes, it is true to say that there were opportunities for the police to intervene. Uh, the most notable, perhaps, is that moment we've just heard about when Benaz uh, ran away from her father after he'd tried to kill her. Um, she ran into a local cafe in absolute terror and ended up at the hospital. And this is where the police were called. Uh, they spoke to Bernaz, but for whatever reason, they did not follow up on her claims. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was New Year's Eve, it was noisy, there were lots of drunk people. She was drunk because her father had got her drunk, so maybe they just thought it was just another tale of a drunk woman. I, it certainly feels incredible now uh, that that opportunity was missed. Um, but I suppose we have to remember that we're looking back now with the benefit of hindsight. Ten years on from this crime, we now know what went on to happen. But the police deal with complaints like this all the time. Hundreds of thousands of statements from women who think their lives are in danger. And the police just can't possibly investigate every single one of these. They haven't got the time, they haven't got the manpower. And the truth is that 99.9% .9 of these complaints come from women who are still walking around today safe and well. It's only that 0.1%, that very rare exception, that turns into a tragedy. And unfortunately for Banaz Mahmood, she was that exception. So what lessons can we learn from a tragedy like this? Well, actually, quite a few, it seems. We spoke to some police officers on the streets close to where Benaz died. Uh, they saw that we were filming and they came along um, just to see what we were up to. And when we told them the subject of our documentary that we were filming, they all remembered the case. In fact, even the younger officers who weren't in the force at the time knew all about it. And the reason is, they told us, is that this case is now used to train officers in the investigation and detection of honour-based violence. So it shows that if anything good can possibly come from the tragedy of Benaz's death, then it's this. It's the hope that the example of her case and the way it was investigated could hopefully stop other potential victims from having the same kind of experience as she had. And hopefully, because of that, they will get the help they need uh, before it's too late. Mark also did his own extensive research into honour-based violence, and here's his take on the subject. 
There are some who think that the term honour killing should be done away with, even though these most, uh, most of the time when it's referred to in, in the media, it's called so-called honour killing. Um, of course, we all know there is no honour involved in any of it. Uh, perhaps it should be called a shame killing, whatever. Um, there are some who want it done away with completely as a sort of term, but I, I'm not sure I agree. Um, and I've spoken to many members of the kind of communities in which this event can occasionally happen, who do want it to be called what it is. I mean, you know, we do call other kind of murders what, we, what they are. We'll say it's a domestic killing, it's a gangland slaying, it's a serial killing. We do, we do tend to, to give these things titles. What it does at least do is say, this is why this young woman died. Um, and it is why Benaz Mahmoud died, because members of her family thought that her actions had dishonoured them. They would no longer be able to hold their heads up economically as members of the, of, of the community. And it, it reflected on all of them. Her, her actions had, had uh, made the way they were perceived in the community. It had harmed that image and therefore she had to die. And it is, of course, monstrous. Some of those who carry out honour-based violence are, are content to live with the ramifications of what they've done. They see that as part of the, they will, they will accept the fact that they must go to jail and, and pay the price for what they've done. Um, this was very much not a case like this. They just wanted Banaz gone, out of their lives, rewritten almost out of history. When the police went round to the family home, there were no photographs of Banaz. It was almost as though she had never existed. They rewrote their daughter out. Now we don't have five children, we have four. People murder for all sorts of reasons. We know what those reasons are. You know, revenge, lust, money, whatever it is, because they've had one too many to drink one night, you know? To murder your own flesh and blood for such a ridiculous, nebulous reason, because, you know, the idea of honor and shame. Essentially, they, they murdered this young girl because she fell in love with the wrong man. So there was that just sheer kind of human reaction to it. Um, but also, I think, if you're gonna write crime fiction about what is really happening. You've, you've got to write about what's really happening in the world. There's only so many times crime writers can get away with writing books about patterned serial killers. You know, there aren't really too many of those characters running about, thank heavens. And this was just an instance when I wanted to write about something that was really happening. And honor-based violence is a vastly unreported crime. It's something that, you know, we know very little about because not too many cases get reported. The figure of a dozen honour killings is, is thrown about, a dozen a year, it's way more than that. The police are happy to acknowledge it's way more than that. And there's an awful lot of it going on and I just, I wanted to write about something that was really happening for a change. Learning about the whole case like we did, I think the biggest thing that struck me was the sheer amount of people implicated in this one crime. If you count all of the people that planned the murder, committed the murder, transported the body, buried the body, and the men that absolutely flocked to the prison subsequently to offer their services to lie on behalf of the Mammoths to get them off that murder, there are in excess of 50 people that were involved in, in Benaz's murder. That was Caroline Good, the senior officer who investigated the case. She spent years working on it, and what she said there about the number of offenders involved is astonishing, isn't it? I mean, I suppose I'd always assumed honour-based violence was 
the act of mainly one person, like a jilted husband, for example, carrying out ridiculous levels of bloody revenge for what they saw as some slight to their so-called honour. But this is a whole different thing, with Caroline saying there were distinct groups of people prepared not only to help carry out the murder, but also prevent it from being detected. What's possibly even more shocking in this case is that, had it not been for some careless prison talk from some of those initially arrested, the police may never have got to the bottom of what happened. One of the other things I took from this film was just how many leads had to be followed, how many wrong turns and different avenues the police had to go down before they were finally able to build a case. It's particularly impressive when you consider that Benaz's family, her extended family, the very people you would normally expect to be the most helpful in trying to find her, were doing their level best to hinder the investigation at every juncture. And, as much as you might say the police made mistakes before Benaz was murdered, nobody could fault their efforts once she was reported missing. I mean, they really did have a mountain to climb to achieve justice for Benaz, but they climbed it. As I journeyed through this case, I was hoping I might arrive at some kind of understanding of why it happened, of how this um, evil, I suppose is the only word I can think of to accurately describe what happened to Benaz Mahmood, of how it could possibly come about. But I have to confess that having now gone through it all, and, and also had a few months to let it all sink in, I'm still no clearer on how the people who did this could possibly justify their actions. I mean, the bond between a parent and a child is perhaps the strongest and most instinctive there is. I've got three children myself, two of them daughters, and the thought of anyone doing them harm makes me feel dark and murderous. I mean, I'm by no means a violent or confrontational person, but I know I could kill someone who took the life of one of my children, absolutely no question. So to study the horrific details of Banaz Mahmood's life and death, and know that all of it, all of it, was sanctioned and approved by her own father, the very person who should have been looking out for her most in the world, it just makes me incredibly angry and really, really sad. As writers, we always have to try and get inside the minds of the bad people. Our murderous characters are only believable if we give them reason and motive for their actions. And if somehow on some level we can understand them, then you know you can go some way to sort of feeling, I suppose, like the degree of control on these kind of chaotic situations. But in this case, I just can't do it. So the only explanation we have comes from the killers themselves, who called what they did an honour killing. But dear God, I mean, if this is honour, give me shame every time. This podcast is the accompaniment to the television series Written in Blood, which airs on Sunday nights on CBS Reality at 10pm. Feel free to tweet me any comments or questions you have at Simon Toyne, all lowercase, all one word, uh, using the hashtag Written in Blood. Or contact me on my Facebook author page, and it's always very lovely to hear from you all. Next week, I visit the city of Liverpool with Alex Marwood, a totally brilliant crime writer whom Stephen King once described as being scary as hell. I'm pretty sure he meant her books, not her. At least I'm hoping that's the case. That podcast will go live after the show airs, and if you really want to make sure you absolutely do not miss it, just hit subscribe now and you'll get it automatically. That's it from me. Thanks for listening. I'm Simon Toyne, and this has been the Written in Blood podcast. 
Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.